Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Wise Guys Podcast. I am John Tortorelli with my co-host Brandon Capizello. Today we're going to be talking about the Christian McCaffrey trade, what it does to the San Francisco 49ers in the NFC, UFC 280, and a little bit of some NBA reactions as well. Jay Ray, I believe is at a baseball game right now. I think he might have had a doubleheader, I'm not quite sure. But he also has to deal with the Yankees getting their butts whipped as well. So I can understand why he's not here with us right now. He'll be back for tomorrow's episode number 41. It's all good. How are you doing today, brother? I'm chilling. Had a great <clears throat> day off. Took the day off because uh, UFC 280 was on early today. They were in Abu Dhabi. So had a great day. It was a great pay-per-view, and I'm ready to get it going. I'm excited to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So right after we had recorded on Wednesday, Christian McCaffrey was traded to the 49ers for a second round pick this upcoming year, a third, a fourth, and a fifth round draft selection in 2024. Now keep in mind, these Niners picks, they're going to be later in those rounds. So it's really Mm -hmm. like a late second, late third, not as valuable as, you know, an early day two pick. So my question to you is, this 49ers offense now has Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, Brandon Ayuk, and Debo Samuel, who last year 1,400 yards, and later on in the season, they'll be getting Elijah Mitchell back. On paper, this is the deadliest core of weapons in the conference. Are they the team to beat now, with CMC being added into the mix in midseason? Um, well, first, I should say, um, they also will be getting Trent Williams back later in the season, one of the, if not the best left tackle or offensive lineman in the game. This, uh, season, so that, this yeah. week. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, he's coming back this week and they're getting Bosa back this week. I think arms, they're getting a couple of their key players on both sides of the ball back this week against a big game against the Kansas city chiefs. Um, But to answer your question, maybe on paper, but right now I think you'd probably have to give it to Philly because they've gone out there and proven it over the last six weeks. Uh, They are six and oh. And even though I am a little, you know, I still am skeptical, skeptical, because of their uh, schedule and not the best competition um, you would want to look at and say, this is the best team in the NFL, but they've done, they've gone out there and done their jobs. So I think you'd have to give them the nod there uh, over the 49ers because we haven't seen it yet. Uh, Yes. This CMC trade makes the Niners a very uh, more dynamic offense because we know how Kyle Shanahan likes to, you know, use uh, motion and all the tricks and whatever, all that stuff to get the run game and the passing game, uh, you know, going. But we got to hope and make sure Christian McCaffrey stays healthy. He stayed healthy uh, this season so far. But because he, he's all, I think the thing is he's only played, what is it, 16 games in the last three years? Yeah. So he's done good this season. He's played all the games this season. Uh, He's only missed, I think, maybe two practices all year. Uh, But to go with your um, the draft picks, what they got. So when we first when this was first uh, broached, you know, when the whole Panthers thing started coming down, Matt Rule getting fired, uh, their defensive coordinator, if I'm not going to say getting fired and Steve Wilkes getting put in as the interim head coach. A lot of people said, okay, uh, Panthers are on fire sale mode. DJ Moore is going to be gone. Robbie Anderson is going to be gone. CMC is going to be gone. Well, two out of the three are gone so far. DJ Moore is kind of the only guy there, and he's probably like, um, 
why do I have to stay in this, this terrible, terrible thing? But I said, I'm not giving up CMC unless it's a first round pick. And I want at least somewhere 15 to 20 range, if I'm really being honest. And from reports, apparently the Panthers went into negotiations looking for two first round picks. That's how much they uh, valued uh, Christian McCaffrey. Now they went away with, uh, like you said, a second, third, fourth, and a fifth uh, the year after this year, 2024. So they walked away with a good deal. Uh, I don't know about the other deals, if it was the best deal available, but I, I think actually, I think it, it came down to the Niners and the Rams. If I'm not mistaken, they were the last two teams and the 49ers just outbid them because the Rams have traded basically all their picks because, you know, they're saying F them picks. Yeah, they, well, <laughs> you could have used them picks <laughs> this time. Uh, but right now, no, I'd have to give it to Philly because they've gone out in there and done the job. We, we still have, is yet to be seen with this 49ers offense. In terms of salary, the 49ers, they're only on the hook for about 670000 this season because that's his base salary at the restructuring this offseason. So it's not like they're paying him out the wazoo. That guaranteed bonus when he signed, Carolina was paying that. So for the 49ers, I felt they overpaid here given the value of CMC, a running back that has been injury-prone the last three years, typically at 26 is when these guys have the beginning of the end. Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, the list goes on and on. I feel like the one exception is Derrick Henry, but it took the Titans two years to really realize, hey, we should make this guy our entire offense, almost three years. When I look at Christian McCaffrey being integrated into this 49ers offense, I said to myself, this is the perfect fit, an outside run that's outside zone offense that's going to allow him to get out into open space. With Debo Samuel, those two guys are really just being elevated by Kyle Shanahan's offense. And the ironic part about it was Christian's dad and Ed was the star receiver on the 1998 Broncos team that, with Mike Shanahan, Kyle's dad, won a Super Bowl, the same offense. So it really is a full circle moment for both of those two families. And I think CMC, going from a place in Carolina, which has the 30th ranked offense and win rate for run blocking, to the 16th unit that's now getting back Trent Williams in the coming weeks, He's getting back to practice now. This is a completely new game for him. Sure, he's been injury prone, but the onus is no longer on him to be the bell cow getting 25 to 30 touches a week. He's only getting 12 to 17. You add in Elijah Mitchell, all the 49ers do is make stars of undrafted running backs, whether it's a Raheem Mostert to Matt Breida, most recently Elijah Mitchell, a fifth-round pick. If they can make something out of nothing with those guys, I can only imagine what Shanahan is a bad do with CMC, who has been the best running back in football when healthy. And this year, is averaging 4.6 yards a carry in spite of all that he had to overcome with Ben McAdoo as the OC and Matt mm-hmm. Rule as the coach in Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, he became, uh, CMC became uh, Baker Mayfield's best friend uh, through those uh, first couple of games that Baker was playing. He was throwing the ball a lot because, you know, Obviously, the offensive line was not blocking well and can't get the ball down the field if the offensive line's not blocking well. So who do you throw to? The guy that's standing right next to you. And he happens to be a 1,000-1,000 guy when uh, fully healthy. And <clears throat> So going into this week, right, we did our predictions on Thursday. And I think you said it relied on Nick Bosa being there. Well, Nick Bosa is going to play. 
Our Eric Armstead is still out. Um, your boy, uh, I'm still going to butcher his name, uh, Tala, I'll call him Tala, is uh, questionable. And so is Javarius uh, uh, Ward. So I'm, I would imagine you're still picking the 49ers because Bose is there and CMC is going to play. For me, I pick the Chiefs. I'm going to stick with the Chiefs. I understand it's a, they're facing a tough test come this Sunday, especially in San Francisco. But I just feel like it's going to come down to Patrick Mahomes versus Jimmy Garoppolo. And if the ball is in Jimmy Garoppolo's hands late in the game, I don't believe in him. And I don't think a lot of people believe in him. He's got a lot of playmakers around him. That's the whole point of why he's surrounding his quarterback who has got deficiencies and put a bunch of great playmakers around him. But as we saw in the Super Bowl, he had to make the play. He had to make the play. His receiver made the play. If I'm not mistaken, it was Emmanuel Sanders. He made the play. He got open, wide open. Jimmy couldn't make the play. I'll be honest with you, B-Cap. It is kind of sad that's the defining legacy of Jimmy Garoppolo because the more you think about it, the guy is the ideal game manager. He's going to work in the middle of the field. He's going to hit the flag consistently. And at the highest levels, no, he's going to miss a, a pass that he should hit. He's not going to be able to close the game for you at a, at the level of an Aaron Rodgers could sealing the deal. But if you're trying to make it to the playoffs, if you put the talent around him, he's just going to run the offense at an acceptable level. And I think for San Francisco, this is the perfect backup, given the fact Trey Lance is the high upside shot here. And he give... here. Here's the thing with the game managers, right? You say he's the perfect game manager. I would say the perfect game manager is your boy, Alex Smith. I think he is literally the perfect, what you would describe as a game manager. Because for me, the definition of a game manager is Somebody who won't win you the game, but they won't lose you the game. And that's Alex Smith at, at, at his finest. He's not going to win you the game making the big throws down the field, but he's gonna he's not gonna lose you the game because he's not gonna make uh, take those chances and throw the football down the field a lot. Jimmy Garoppolo is kind of the flip side of that. He won't win you the game, but he will lose you the game. And that's kind of the problem with Jimmy. With Alex Smith, I get where you're coming from, but later on in his career, I felt like he was more than that. When he goes to Washington with Jay Gruden as his head coach, they were a playoff team. They are at the top of the NFC East because of what Alex Smith was bringing into a team that had just lost Kirk Cousins. To me, Kirk Cousins is above the level of a game manager, and Alex Smith was better for them. They were winning at a higher level. The offense was running gunning, and he had just been introduced to a new offense and a brand-new scheme with a brand-new entire unit. I feel like Alex Smith will be a little bit above that. But I do want to say for Jimmy G, if there's anything you're going to say about the guy, when you give him CMC, those two are going to build a special connection. He's going to hit him often in the receiving game. And there's just really no pressure, I feel like, on him. Given the fact, if this team can have three of those four, I know this is a tough ask here, weapons healthy going to the playoffs, I don't think Philadelphia can really beat them. And it's because... They have the best defense in the conference, them in Buffalo right now. And they've been a little bit, I think, above the level of Buffalo. In points per game, they're a little bit below. This 49ers defense is ridiculous at every level. Mm -hmm. And 
D'Amico Ryan's, the job he has done replacing Robert Sala has been nothing short of phenomenal, just yeah. maximizing the, the development of all of these players. So the San Francisco team is the team to be in the NFC. This episode is brought to you by our friends at BetStamp. BetStamp is changing the game of sports betting. Long are the days of having to flip through a bunch of different sports books to maybe find the right odds for you. In one single click, you can go into the app and find the best odds available to you. You can find custom betting trackers and local tools to suit your needs and accounting tools for the end of the season. Whatever it may be, they have something for you. We recommend you to go check out the app for yourself and use our referral code at WiseGuys, W-I-S-E-G-U-Y-S, and join us in the BetStamp app. Thank you so much for BetStamp for supporting us. And as always, back to the show. Now, moving over to USC 280, mm-hmm. I want you to take the reins here. What was your biggest takeaway this Saturday afternoon? Preview the fights. Hmm. Biggest takeaway from UFC 280. Give me the rundown. The rundown. So it was the most stacked card of uh, the year. Uh, starting off with the, the biggest um, fight on the prelims, the main event of the prelims. You had Bilal Muhammad, who was, I believe, ranked fifth in the world at welterweight, taking on Sean Brady, number eight uh, at welterweight. And Sean Brady was 15-0 and 0 going into the fight. I picked Sean Brady to win. I thought Sean... Um, was going to physically impose his will on Bilal, uh, use his great wrestling and jujitsu. But it was a complete stand-up fight, to my uh, surprise. Sean really couldn't get the takedowns that he wanted to. Um, Didn't really even look like he was fully committing to the takedowns, even when he was attempting. Uh, So it was basically a stand-up fight, and Bilal was, you know, Sean was landing the bigger and harder shots, but Bilal was landing more shots. And by the end of round two, Bilal just kind of, you know, overwhelmed them and got the TKO uh, on Sean Brady. It was standing TKO. I don't think, uh, I don't believe he dropped him. Uh, Then moving on to the pay-per-view. I'm going to skip the first fight. It was a women's fight. I will just mention that uh, because not because it was women, because it was just not that interesting of a fight. It was kind of the one fight that you looked at uh, and said, this is kind of a, you know, it could be a more boring fight. And and it, and it was, but um, Manon uh, Ferrat, I think I'm saying that right. She's from France. She just beat the number one uh, ranked uh, uh, female flyweight in Caitlin Chukagian. So now she's moving up to that number one spot, and I believe I believe she's going to be fighting Valentin, the the reigning defending UFC flyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko, one of the greatest, uh, probably, yeah, number two greatest female fighter in, in the history of the sport. Uh, so that's going to be a good fight, probably early next year. But moving on to the next fight, Benil Deriush, uh, I think he was the number sixth ranked lightweight in the world. Uh, taking on Mateus Gamrat, and uh, Gamrat came into this fight twenty-one and one. His only loss was a split decision. And Benil is coming off a, let's see, he his last fight was in February of twenty twenty-one, where he beat uh, Tony Ferguson via decision. He broke his ankle earlier this year. He was supposed to fight Islam Makachev, who headlined uh, this fight card. Uh, he coming back, so he fought. Um, Gamrat and he was able to um, win a unanimous decision against Gamrat. Uh, Gamrat just really spammed a lot of takedowns, and Benil had an answer for almost every takedown. I think he was 
it's hard to remember. I think like 15 of 18 on takedown um, attempts. So he was really defending a lot of them. It was like above 80%, I believe, his takedown defense. Uh, so Benil, it's he's not going to be – he should be fighting for the lightweight title next, but I'll get into why he's not and why he'll probably be fighting somebody who lost in the main event of this fight card. So moving on to my boy, Sugar Sean O'Malley, who I have staked my claim next to and said that this guy is going to be a megastar. I believe he is next up. He's got next. Uh, he was taken on Piotr Jan, the number one ranked bantamweight uh, contender in the world, a former bantamweight champion. And Sean O'Malley came into this fight, the 11th ranked bantamweight contender. Now, this fight was very interesting. I had a vested interest. I'm a Sugar Sean fan, uh, full disclosure. I don't really care. I'm just a big Sugar Sean fan. Uh, when I watched this fight, Sean, sh I will talk about the positives for Sean. He, sh he, he, got, he got tested this fight, and which is a, what a lot of people wanted to see, is how is he going to deal against the top level of the Bantamweight division? And I think he passed, passed those tests. He got taken down. He got rocked a couple of times. Uh, he, this was probably the most time he's been hit in his entire career. Uh, and he got, he got pushed to the limit. Um, there were times in that fight where I thought Sean O'Malley was completely gassed. But after a rough second round where he was kind of getting beat up a lot and where he got really rocked um early on the, the first minute of the second round was insane o'malley connects on like i think it was a big right hand to kind of rock um piotr and then piotr comes back like maybe 10 seconds later and hits o'malley with a big right and that leads to o'malley getting taken down and then jan kind of controlling that uh rest of the round and then he came out in the third round and i said you know what this is going to show us a lot this is going to show us what's inside of sugar sean because coming out in that third round, ending that second round, he looked tired. He was breathing heavy through his uh, mouth. Like he was taking big, deep breaths. Uh, and I was like, this is going to show us what this guy is really made of. And he came out and he fought his ass off in the third round. He landed a big knee uh, somewhere in the middle of the round that split Jan wide open right here on the eyebrow. Caused a major uh, uh, leakage, if you will. And I, I was just thoroughly impressed with Sean O'Malley's heart after the fight. He, he came out uh, uh, in the post-fight uh, interview and he said to DC that um, he went to a place that he never uh, went to before in this fight. He had to dig deep and it showed. Uh, now, listen, I will say this. He got the split decision win. It was a close-ass fight. I believe Piotr Jan won the fight. I have to admit it. I believe Piotr won. When the judges were reading the scorecards off, I went fully in. I, I was basically like, okay, Piotr won. You know, I wasn't really thinking O'Malley even had a shot. Then they read the scorecards off. And the first judge read it, 29-28 O'Malley. Then the second judge um, read it, 29-28 for Piotr. And I went, hold on a second here. And then the last judge ranked, uh, scored a 29-28 for the winner by split decision, Sugar Sean O'Malley. And I went, I went crazy. I went, 
ballistic. I was like yelling at the top of my lungs. I ran outside because both of my friends that were watching the fights with, uh, they went outside because after the fight, they thought Jan won the fight. You know, it was pretty clear Jan won the fight. I went outside. I looked at both of them. I was like, Sugar Sean is still here. So listen, I tweeted out after that. I said, I think I don't agree with the decision, but God damn it. Let's go sugar show. We go to the top. He's probably, he, I wouldn't be surprised if he's not the number one. Uh, he's got that number one ranking next to his name uh, Tuesday morning. If I'm not mistaken, those rankings come out. He just went in there and beat the number one ranked Bantamweight contender. Uh, I don't think he's next for the title. I believe that he's going to uh, have to fight one more person. And if I had to, choose which one I think it would either be Chito Vera, the rematch to the controversial loss that O'Malley had before or TJ Dillashaw who competed in the co-main event of this fight card. And then I think, um, but I'll get to why in, in a second. So the co-main event was Aljamain Sterling, the reigning defending Bantamweight champion taking on TJ Dillashaw, who some people think is the greatest Bantamweight um, fighter uh, to ever fight. Now, unbeknownst to the fans, Aljo and Dana White himself, TJ Dillashaw went into this fight with a shoulder injury. He said he, uh, I think he said he dislocated it or separated it in April of this year. And then he said uh, uh, during the post-fight uh, interview that he dislocated it, he said at least 20 times during the fight camp um, leading up to this fight. And... Right off the bat, I mean, Aljo, they struck for a little bit, and then Aljo got a takedown on him, and it was a weird movement, but then you could see in the replays where TJ's shoulder pops out of its socket. So he fights the whole first round uh, with one shoulder, basically. Uh, valiant effort, didn't get finished in the first round. And then the second round comes along, um, actually during the, uh, you know, uh, break part between round one and round two. The the coaches for TJ were able to massage the shoulder enough and pop it back into place. So he was able to continue for the second round, but it was only for a little bit. The shoulder eventually they got on the mat and the shoulder popped back out again. And Aljo just kind of rained, uh, rained shots on him and TJ really couldn't defend himself. So he took the L there. Uh, but next, to, uh, that was a disappointing fight because, you know, just coming into the shoulder injury and it, it just really wasn't a, a fight to begin with. I tweeted, I said, listen, Aljo did what he what he should have did against a one-armed man, you know, and dominate and beat him. But I'm not going to give him too much pr uh, props and credit for that because, you know, he just did what he, he should have did. Uh, but I, I believe Aljo, his time as a Bantamweight is coming to an end. He's talked about openly that the, the, the weight cuts are tough, that he's going to move up to 145. And also the fact that his training partner is the number three ranked Bantamweight contender in the world in Marab uh, Valashvili. Uh, so I think Aljo might be getting one more fight in the Bantamweight division, then he's going to um, move up. And I think that last fight is going to be against Henry Cejudo, the returning um, former double champ, Olympic gold medalist, uh, one of the greatest fighters of all time. That's going to be a great fight. Uh, right now, I would be favoring Henry Cejudo in that fight. Uh, probably sometime early next year, you should be seeing that. Uh, but moving on to the main event, the card in which this um, fight was built off of. Charles Dubronx Oliveira, the 
the former lightweight champion because he got stripped of the title earlier this year because he missed weight by half a pound. Taking on Islam Makachev, cousin to Habib Nurmagomedov. Um, so I had Charles in this fight going in. I just, I, I, I thought Charles was going to, I mean, I've been thoroughly impressed with Charles's run to the title. His last four fights were highly impressive. Uh, he was able to dominate Tony Ferguson. He was able to, um, actually, even before that, he was able to submit Kevin Lee, uh, dominate Tony, uh, come back after getting dropped in the first round by Michael Chandler to knock out Chandler in the second round to win the title. Then to go against Dustin Poirier, get dropped in the first round, I think twice, come back and finish him in round three with a rear naked choke to defend his title. Then to go against Justin Gaethje, where he got stripped for the title because he missed weight and get dropped by Gaethje in the first round again, but then go on to uh, drop Gaethje and then eventually get the submission on Gaethje. I thought it was just thoroughly impressive. He's just running through these guys. And Islam was coming off a win against Bobby Green, who's a good fighter, but he's not even ranked in the top 15. Islam had zero wins against the top 10 lightweight coming into this fight. But Islam, I, I can't sit here and lie to you. Islam came in there and he made it look easy. He thoroughly dominated Charles Oliveira. It was not close. It wasn't close on the feet and it was not close on the ground. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Islam, yeah, no, I am mistaken. Okay. Islam dropped him once. And he was, and that was in the second round. And he was able to jump on top of him, put him in an arm triangle, and uh, get the submission against uh, Dubronk. So now you're reigning, defending lightweight champion. Islam Makachev. And after the fight, he called out Alexander Volkanovsky, the reigning featherweight champion and the number one pound for pound fighter in the world, ranked on UFC.com. Not in my opinion, but he called him out and said, We are, well, actually, Habib called him out in the octagon. Uh, Habib said, My brother is going to be fighting Volkanovsky in Australia, Perth, Australia. Islam is going to his house. Volkanovsky's house to fight Volkanovsky for the number for the uh, number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Volk is moving up a weight uh, to one fifty five, and that fight's going to be happening in February of next year. So, big fight to look forward to. Uh, I like Volk a lot. I've gained a lot of respect for him. I think he might be, and I know he's going to say, you know, everybody's going to doubt me, but I, I just think he's biting off a little bit too much. Uh, right now with Islam because it's different when you step in the cage with the those Dagestani guys. I'm watching but that was you that that go ahead, John. I'm watching the fight highlights now. That was a quick one. I mean it was like within 15, 20 seconds he got him on the ground. And typically for someone like me, I never see that. I watch fights sporadically or the UFC sporadically. And so when I see it happen like within 20 seconds, I'm saying myself. That guy is built different. Given the genetics and uh -huh. where he's coming from, I can I can see this guy is but I'm I'm surprised though. Oliveira is like well regarded, he's one of the best fighters. Yes. Mm -hmm. What exactly was with this mashup? So listen, when when you get into the octagon with an Islam or a Habib when he was fighting, uh a lot of these Dagestani guys, they come from this Sambo wrestling style. And I'm not going to sit here and act like an expert, but I do listen to people that are much smarter than me in the fight world, uh, ex-fighters, current fighters, 
um, analysts in the game that have been, you know, watching the sport for 20 plus 30 years or whatever. And the Sambo wrestling is just a different style than American wrestling. What we're used to, it's different. Um, So they've, they've found a way to dominate um, the Americans and every, every other nationality really with this wrestling, these Dagestanis, Um, Habib, Habib did it. Islam did it. And, and they've talked, they talk about it with Habib and Islam too. These guys are big guys. Like when they're not uh, cutting weight, when they're walking around normal weight, they're up there at like, I want to say 200, like 190, 200 pounds. These are big, big dudes. All right. These are dudes that trained in the mountains of Dagestan with nothing, nothing to have fighting in woods. I'm not even kidding. When I say they're fighting bears, they're literally wrestling bears. Okay. I'm, you can look up the videos of Habib wrestling a bear. He did it. They, they, these Dagestanis are built different. Um, so yeah, with Islam, it's just, it, it, all I can say is it's different. He, these guys are built different. Uh, Charles is a very good fighter, but Islam is just, he's a better fighter on this day. And he was, I think he's the better fighter overall. And I, and if I got to be honest, um, I said this to my friend when we were watching the fight, I said, listen, I never thought Habib looked very comfortable on the feet fighting. Um, it's just to me, Habib's striking was always elementary. Uh, it really didn't impress me. Uh, and, and I know some people might clip this off and say, Oh, look, he knocked down Conor McGregor. If you know anything about fighting, yes, he knocked down Conor McGregor because when you're fighting a person who is strictly a wrestler, your hands are going to be down and you're going to be focused more on a wrestler. And that's Habib's special punch that he throws that he knocked Conor down with, which is called the eagle punch is what they've uh, named it, is where he shoot uh, kind of fakes for the takedown and then shoots up with like a weird uppercut, but like a straight punch. It's a very weird punch. But other than that, like Habib always looked, he didn't look comfortable on the feet. Like he always looked like he just wanted to get to the ground. Islam, Islam looked comfortable on the feet. He looked tight. He looked crisp. Uh, He's leaps and bounds better than Habib on the feet. Uh, He's not the wrestler that Habib was, but he's damn freaking good. And he trains with them every freaking day. Uh, But yeah, this Sambo style is different. It just is. I looked up the bear video. Pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. That's just what was filmed. <laughs> Very good point. Um, next up, the Philadelphia 76ers, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Our team that you're not quite high on. You are a no. believer in James Harden at the highest levels. Yep. And like many people, you're concerned about Joel Embiid's health. Yes. In the postseason. To start this season, they're on three. Now, I typically mm-hmm. am not one that subscribes to the overreactions that come with October basketball, but I do look at this roster and the lack of depth here. Today, they're outscored by the San Antonio Spurs bench by 30 points. San Antonio had a couple of huge games from mm-hmm. Keldon Johnson early and also Don Vassell player that I was expecting to break out season. And I don't think the San Antonio team is quite as bad on paper right now given the veterans they have in the roster as most expect coming into the year my question for you is among the western or excuse me among eastern conference contenders 
are the 76ers just pretenders? Are they going to make it out the second round? Or are they just another year of same old, we get the first round, they run to a Miami or a Boston, and they deal with us swiftly? Um, listen, as a, as a Philadelphia uh, non-believer, I do think that they can make a conference finals. Um, and I know you come from the token of if you make a conference finals, that makes you a contender. I don't believe that because um, we've seen teams before. Um, surprisingly, Atlanta, two different uh, generations, if you were to call it, the Al Horford one and the Trey Young one, neither of those teams were contenders. They might have made the conference finals, but they weren't legit contenders. Um for me, yeah, they are they are what you would call pretenders, if you really want to say that, because at the end of the day, this team and, and I've heard of, I've I've since the season started, I know it's only three games in, but everybody's talking about it, how this is the same team as last year. They do not play different. It's ISO ball, it's James Harden, it's Joel Embiid. My turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. There's no ball movement off the there's no off ball movement, there's no it's the same team. It's the same. And if you're putting out the same product as last year, then you're going to get the same result. So for me, they're, they're not doing nothing. I'm sorry. They're a low end top tier team. They are. I, I, I choose Boston over them. I choose Milwaukee over them. I, even though my Miami heat are zero and two right now, they're playing right now. If I'm not mistaken, I choose Miami over them. Um, and I think they're right there with a Cleveland and Brooklyn, if I'm going to be completely honest. I know Brooklyn's got their woes, but I think that's where they are right now in that range. The fourth range kind of tied with those top three teams. Go ahead, John. Or Toronto, a team that they tied last year and wins. They're I don't believe not at all. Toronto's a very good team. They are, but... I do think you're undervaluing the impact P.J. Tucker has on a team where... Since losing Jimmy Butler, they've lacked will, a competitive stamina. Mm -hmm. And at the highest levels, P.J. Tucker can bring value on both ends of the floor. Now, last year Miami, Eric Spolster was able to do things with them activating him as a scorer mm -hmm. that we have not seen in P.J.'s career. But when it comes to crashing the glass, boxing out, gaining offensive rebounds and loose balls, mm -hmm. P.J. adds a lot more value than just the mm -hmm. versatility and toughness on D. So you pair that with Daniel House, who... He's going to bring energy. He's going to attack. He can make shots. He's a very good wing player. The 76ers have some two-way wings. But but at the end of the day, we saw Joel Embiid today drop 40 points, and he looked very, very good. First two games, especially the first one against the Celtics, he did not look in good condition, not very active defensively. All of this comes down to Joel Embiid staying healthy. And the more I look at it, we have a 28-year-old in we don't really realize that Joel how old he is that has had a very high usage on offense and a very big task defensively the last four years. And he's seven foot one, 265 pounds. I said to myself, he doesn't care about the regular season. He's focused in the playoffs, but I don't know. He hasn't stayed healthy in the playoffs once in a year where they've actually made out the first rounds. 2020, they got swept. That was the one year he was healthy and they had no Ben Simmons in that playoff run. I look at this Philadelphia team, Brandon, and I say, Another year, the same old Sixers. James Harden was very good the first two games, but still, I, I feel there is a lack of wing depth on this team, and a, a great example of this is Matisse Thibel. The 76ers have not been shooting the ball quite well enough for Matisse to get in there. I do think Doc Rivers can run a lineup with 
James Harden, P.J. Tucker at the five, Matisse at the three with George's knee at the four, and then, you know, like a Tyrese Maxey at the two, or maybe roll at the Anthony Melton, who adds a little bit more defensive versatility on the guard spots. At the end of the day, I don't trust Doc Rivers either. It's a little bit similar to Mike McCarthy in football, where this guy has won a championship and passed with an insane roster, but Doc is probably one of the worst playoff coaches in the Eastern Conference. And I do think in some ways he was better last year against the Raptors than I anticipated, but he just doesn't really elevate this team in the ways that they're probably going to need him to later in the year against a Boston or Milwaukee. But with all of that being said, that's going to wrap up episode. I know, I know. No, I just want to say one more thing um, on the uh, Sixers because what you said. Um, for me, for PJ, I know you talk about the PJ Tucker edition, how much he brings. I will just say it's different because there was a cult, there's a culture in Miami. Like it's already set, it's there. Um, there's no culture in Philadelphia. Uh, so you can bring in a guy like PJ Tucker, but he can only do so much. Kind of like what we're seeing in LA with Pat Beverly. You can bring in a guy who's got that kind of dog in him, but if it's not seeping through the whole team, and it's not kind of from the top down, it, they can only do so much. Um, I, and another thing that you said that uh, I, I laughed at a little bit, you, you said Hemby, beats 265. I, I think he might be closer to 300 pounds. <laughs> He's a big boy. Um, but one last thing I do want to say, I mean, my guy, Kawhi, off the bench. <clears throat> He looked good. He looked real good. <laughs> I like the Clippers a lot. But we'll get into that tomorrow morning. But with all that being said, it's going to wrap up episode number 40 of the Wisecast podcast. Thank you so much for watching. Stay at the very end. Be sure to check out Betstamp. Link is in the description. And as always, we'll see you next time. Stay classy.